Well, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles uh, one more time, at least as far as I'm planning uh, to uh, speak on it. Uh, the book of Revelation, we're in chapter 22. There's a strong parallel in Revelation 22 and Scripture that we normally focus on at this time of year, namely the coming of the Lord. Just as the people of God in the Old Testament uh, longed for the coming of their Messiah in His first advent, we are encouraged in this book, and especially in this text, to long for His coming, I mean, to, to truly yearn for it. And I want you to notice this yearning for Christ's return as we read the text, the visions that the Lord has shown John through his angelic guide. Uh, he's seen them all at this point. He's seen the vision of the tribulation, the Messiah's return to vindicate himself and his people. He's seen the vision of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And he begins writing in verse 6. He says, The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, that's the Holy Spirit and the perfected bride of Christ, believers with the Lord in glory. They yearn, the Holy Spirit and the perfected bride, they yearn for the Lord's coming. But then John says, and let the one who hears say, come. That's an invitation to those of us who hear the words of this book. Because the Lord desires us to align our affections with those of the Holy Spirit and the saints made perfect. He desires that we yearn for his coming. And then he has an invitation here to those who still need to come to Christ so that they may yearn for his coming also. So he says, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires 
take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This final passage uh, in Revelation encourages us to desire the Lord to come, to fulfill His prophecies, to set into motion all that is necessary for the vindication of Himself and His people, declaring to the entire world throughout human history that He was in the right all along, and we who follow Him are in the right. It's our vindication. It's the theme of the whole letter, the whole book. But if we are honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we don't always desire the Lord's coming as we should. We've got big stuff going on. (laughs) We don't want to miss out on it. And His coming is going to disrupt our important plans. Or we think of it as an event in the nebulous future. It's been talked about for so long. It hasn't happened yet. And so why think about it? Why factor it into our future as a possibility? Yet we can tell from this text that it would please the Lord if we desired His coming, if we longed for it like John does here. So we've been looking in these verses at important aspects of the Lord's coming. This is our third Sunday looking at this text. And it's, it's not going to look like I'm going verse by verse through the text if you're just joining us right here right now, which, which is, we normally do. But that's because there's different themes in this text, and we've kind of jumped all over. You notice Jesus speaks up every once in a while. If you have the words of Christ in red in your Bible, you see a band of red here and a band of red there. There's just so much going on in this text. But we've been looking at these verses as as important aspects of the Lord's coming that teach us, that encourage us to long for the Lord's coming. And if we embrace these aspects of His coming, they will shepherd our hearts to favor His coming and even yearn for it like those in this passage. So what are these important aspects of His coming? I'm going to review the first two we looked at really quickly, and then we'll go on to the third and the fourth, the third and the final this morning. So these important aspects of His coming, first of all, are the certainty of His coming. In verse 6, the angel says to John, these words are trustworthy and true. Two times in Revelation, Jesus is presented as the faithful and true witness, or we could say the faithful, the trustworthy, and true witness. Once in Revelation 3.14, Jesus refers to himself as the trustworthy and true witness, and when he comes on the white horse to judge in 1911, he is called the trustworthy and true witness. And this trustworthy and true witness in verse 6 is described here as the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets who has sent his angels to show what must soon take place. So revelation is the product of the trustworthy and true witness giving his church trustworthy and true words through his angels and his apostle John. In fact, these words are so true. We just read this text. Their fulfillment is so absolute that there's this dire warning. We talked about this warning already. 
There's this dire warning in verses 18 and 19 for anyone who would hear the words of this prophecy. Do not add anything to this. Do not subtract anything from the truth of this book. They are so certain, these words. And our conviction of the truth of these words is foundational to our desire to see them come true. To see the Lord return and put into emotion the events described in this book. We cannot yearn for the Lord's coming unless we truly believe in the Lord's coming. But there's a second important aspect that we talked about already last week. Not only do we see here the certainty of His coming, but we also see the nearness of His coming. If we go back to verse 6 for a moment, the Lord has given these trustworthy and true words about what must, what must soon take place. And then Jesus himself says, behold, I am coming soon. And he says this again in verse 12. And he says it again in verse 20. Surely I am coming soon. And John cries out, amen, come Lord Jesus. Because the proper response of the Lord's soon coming is to yearn for the Lord to come. And as we saw last week, the promise of the Lord to come soon and quickly does not mean that he has to come within a few weeks or even a few years or, as we've known, even a few centuries from this promise. Just as Jesus came the first time at that first Christmas, as Paul puts it, when the fullness of the time was come, Jesus will return the second time when the fullness of the time has come. That is, for instance, when his mercy and compassion are full toward all those who will come to him before it is too late. And when he is finished aligning the events of the world into the perfect order that it needs to be set as in order for these events to unfold. And from our vantage point, it could be any time. Between the time when God called Abraham and the promise to raise a nation through this deliverer, Jesus Christ, And his birth in Bethlehem is only slightly longer than we have been waiting for Jesus since the first century. And think of this. We look back on that holy act of love, the birth of our Savior, for over 20 centuries, almost 20 centuries, a little over 20 centuries. We look back on the birth of Jesus Christ. What God's people waited for and longed for, and some had decided, you know what? It's probably not going to happen. The Messiah is not going to come. That happened. And it happened so long ago. And as soon as the Lord is ready, it will happen again. And one day in ages to come, we will be looking back on that event. This time, however, he will come not as the humble baby in the manger. He will come as the glorious conquering king. And we will learn to yearn for this coming as we reckon it into our thinking on a daily basis that it could possibly take place today. It is near. Now, this morning, as we worship the Lord in the middle of the season of the celebration of his first coming, I want to finish this last text in Revelation by looking at two final aspects of the Lord's coming that are seen here, in in addition to the certainty of His coming and the nearness of His coming. Let's consider this morning the wonder of His coming, the wonder of His coming. There's a kind of wonder that people the world over feel about Christmas, wherever it is celebrated, the, the sights and the sounds, the love expressed. Everybody's like a little nicer to each other. Your kids are a lot nicer because they think they're going to get stuff, right? 
Everybody's a little happier. There's joy. There's this expectancy. We are infected with this wonder, I think, when we're young, because as a small child, Christmas time is larger than life itself. Do you remember that when you were a kid? Some of you may be going through it right now. Everyone we know is expressing great anticipation. They actually bring a tree into the house and they decorate it with these shining lights and colors. And there are presents under the tree that we're told we'll be able to open in a particular day that is soon to come. And there are special events and services and parties and family gatherings and singings of special songs and decorations and food and feelings of love and warmth. And in the middle of it in Christian families, at least, and and probably some others traditionally, there's the story of Jesus being told, coming as a baby, and angels appearing to shepherds, and wise men following the star across the desert, bringing gifts to Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus in a stable. Now, I, I realize that not everyone grows up with this kind of experience. We also know that our culture has greatly romanticized Christmas. And in many cases, Christ has been stripped completely out of it as if it has nothing to do with him. It's, it's really of a kind of ironic blindness since he is the origin of Christmas. And at least in the English-speaking world, the name of Christ is right there in the holiday. But the wonder of Christmas is still, I think, a generally common human experience. And I would argue that this is because of the influence of Christianity itself. I think that that Christmas is associated with special feelings of joy and wonder and anticipation because it's a time of year when everyone is unwittingly mimicking the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness. And this means that those who genuinely know Jesus Christ should have the best Christmas of all because we are in Christ and the life of Christ is being lived out through us. But regardless of how much wonder we still experience during the time of celebration of the first coming of Christ, there is a wonder, a profound wonder that we should sense regarding His coming again. What must take our inspiration uh, from, from, what we must do is take our inspiration from John, who in these closing verses is himself filled with awe and amazement and wonder. In fact, this is what he says in verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, what does he do? I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets and and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Now, John knows better than to worship the angel. He had already made this mistake once. You remember this? Back in chapter 19, it's only a couple of chapters back, but it seems like months ago, right? In chapter 19, John was so overwhelmed at the scene that he fell down and started worshiping the angel. And the angel said, stop it, don't worship me. I'm, I'm like you, I'm a servant. Worship God. Very similar to what we find here. So is John just being stubborn, you know? No, it's obvious that he's forgotten himself once again. He's so overwhelmed at the wonder of all that he has seen and heard that he falls down the angel's feet. He can't help himself. He's got to worship somebody. And he receives a similar response to what he received before. It's easy to yearn for something that you're captivated by. 
I think I speak for most of us when I say that you probably did not have to be taught to anticipate Christmas when you were a child. You may have had one of those Advent calendars, right, where you mark off each day until Christmas and you're sort of counting it down every day. And on Christmas Eve, you were so excited you couldn't sleep. Do we think of the Lord's coming with that much anticipation? I know that yearning for the Lord to come is not exactly the same affection as a child experiences who is counting down the days and hours till Christmas morning, but if the Lord is pleased with our yearning for Him to return, if it is a Holy Spirit-driven response like the text indicates, then like a child full of wonder at magnificent things he doesn't quite fully understand yet, we need our imaginations to be captivated by what John has left for our meditation what Jesus asked him to write for us, what we have read of the glories of the Lord's coming and of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and everything given to us by Jesus Christ ought to enliven our minds and whet our appetites and make us long for the sheer glory of our final home. But the most wonderful thing we have to look forward to is beholding Jesus Christ himself. If we wonder at nothing else, we should at least wonder at him, stand in awe of him. And there's so many reasons, so many reasons to wonder at him in the book of Revelation. I want to call briefly this morning your attention to just the way Jesus describes himself in this very text. This is the last description of Jesus in the Bible. And it's a self-description. And I find these two descriptions in verse 13 and then in verse 16. The first in verse 13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We've encountered language like this already in Revelation. Several times, Alpha and Omega and first and last and beginning and end are used to describe God, sometimes Jesus Christ, but this is the only place in Revelation where all three descriptions are used together for emphasis and they refer to Jesus Christ. It's three different ways to say the same thing. Before anything ever existed, there was always and had been always into eternity past, Jesus Christ. And if everything else ever ceased to exist there would still be Jesus Christ. The same could be said, of course, for God the Father and the Holy Spirit. But it means that when we meet the Lord Jesus someday, we are meeting the eternal, infinite, self-existent creator of all things. Everything that ever came into existence, everything we see in here right now, came from him. He is the sovereign Lord of all. He is the beginning and the end. But then in verse 16, in halfway through the verse, Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Jesus himself says this. If the expression alpha and omega refers to the deity of Christ, then these expressions refer to the humanity of Christ. This is the last way that Jesus is described in the entire book of Revelation. It's, it's the last way he's described in the entire Bible, this description you see in verse 16. 
this conquering king whose glory will one day light the new earth. He calls himself the root and the descendant of David. Do you realize that for eternity, he will be the root and descendant of David? Through the Virgin Mary, he was born into the royal line of David as the greatest of all kings, born to fulfill the promise to David that his line would endure forever and that his descendant would rule the world and be its Messiah, its Savior. He also calls himself the bright morning star. And no doubt this is a reference to the prophecy spoken by Balaam when God placed in Balaam's mouth this far-reaching prophecy concerning Israel. In Numbers 24, verse 17, it says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. This is again a prophecy, a prophecy about Jesus' coming as the king of Israel and as the Davidic king ruling over the world. This is the very reason we celebrate Christmas to begin with. And it's the last description in the whole Bible. It is why we sing at Christmas songs like, Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. And the birthday of a king. And hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. It's the reason Gabriel told Mary, and the Lord God will give to her son the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. It's the reason the Magi came to Jerusalem, saying, Who is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. This is the wonder of Jesus, that he loved us so much that he was willing, even though he was the Alpha and Omega, to become one of us, confining himself to space and time so that he could represent us before God as our perfect sacrifice. So while we think about Jesus in that lowly stable and growing up in an obscure Galilean town and humbling himself to die for our sins, we cannot forget, we should never forget that all human experience is under his complete control. He's the Alpha and Omega. And he's our brother. He calls us that. He came to be part of our humanity. All that we are and all that we dream of and hope for is subject to his will. And anything we hold dear that is not eternal will one day fade away, but he will endure. He is all that really matters. And he is coming for us. There is so much here to wonder at. And if we will allow the word to wash over our hearts and minds again and again, like John does in, in this whole prophecy, we will begin to be amazed and wonder at his coming. And when that captures our imagination, we will begin to yearn for his coming in a way that pleases the Lord. Now, there's one final important aspect to the coming of Jesus that encourages us to yearn for it. We've looked at the certainty of his coming and the nearness of his coming and the wonder of his coming. Finally, I'd like to consider the significance of his coming. And by significance, which could mean a lot of different things, I debated a long time what word to put there. I, I couldn't think of the right one. Consequence was something I wrestled with. But consequence kind of has a negative connotation. 
This is the significance of his coming. In other words, there are clearly consequences or ramifications, personal ramifications for everyone when the Lord returns, when he sets into motion the events that leads to his kingdom and the new earth. This is the significance of his coming for us you will be either on the right side or the wrong side of his coming. There is no middle ground. Nearly everyone listening right now, either here or online, has had the experience when you were young of your mom or dad telling you, you need to have these things finished when I return. And instead of being diligent and working hard, you frittered away the afternoon and then you looked out and you saw a car pulling into the driveway. And needless to say, you were not yearning for that return. And it was probably not a joyful reunion. Jesus in the Gospels tells five different parables. He presents five parables in his teaching, at least the ones we know about, the ones that were recorded for us. Five different parables about his coming. I'll bet if we went around the room this morning, you remember every one of them. First, Jesus said that his coming was like the master of the house who leaves his servants in charge while he is away and commands them to stay awake because they do not know when he's coming back. Number two, he said his coming was like a thief that comes in the middle of the night and you never know when he's going to come, so you have to stay watchful and awake. Third, he said his coming was like the master of the house leaving his steward in charge while he was on a long journey, but when the master... Uh, was gone longer than expected, the steward took advantage of the situation and began to uh, abuse his position and the master's resources. But suddenly the master showed up and it did not go very well at all for that servant who was severely punished. For Jesus said that his coming was like a bridegroom coming for his virgin brides. And five were wise and prepared, and five were foolish and unprepared. And only those who were prepared were able to go to the wedding, while those who were unprepared were shut out. And finally, Jesus said that his coming was like the master of a house who entrusted his servants with certain amounts of money to invest. The word is talent in our Bibles. And those who did the investing were rewarded, but the servant who did nothing with what he was given was severely punished. Now, each of these parables needs some unpacking in order for us to fully understand their meaning. But there is one message that comes through loud and clear in all of them, actually. And it is that you have no way of knowing when the Lord is going to return, so you had better be ready for it. Five different parables, five different ways Jesus warned his hearers about his coming. And we pick up on the same situation in the last portion of the book of Revelation. Look again at verse 7. Jesus says, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. Who keeps them. The words of the prophecy of this book. To keep means to obey, to observe, to remain faithful to. And we've noted again and again in our series, the book of Revelation is not given to us simply to satisfy our curiosity about the future. We've tried to stay away as much as possible from any kind of debates about things as we're going through the text and, and getting bogged down in that. We're looking at the message of Revelation 
given to us because the Lord is encouraging us to live a certain way because of all these things that will come to pass. As Peter says in 2 Peter 3 that Rob read for us this morning, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? From the beginning of the letter, the Lord has been encouraging his people to live in hope and live in holiness as they wait for his return. But there will be some who live in hope and holiness and those who will not live in hope and holiness. Those who will be ready for his coming and those who will not be ready for his coming. We see this, for instance, in verses 10 and 11. He says, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Does that text confuse anyone? What's he saying here? The evildoer and the filthy are those unbelievers who have no regard for God or his commandments. And the terms righteous and holy refer to believers. They're standing before the God in righteousness and their desire to live a holy life. It's a dichotomy here between two kinds of people that are in the world. Those who believe and follow Christ and those who have rejected him. Now, what is he saying here? Well, one thing we know is that the world will march on and there will always be those who are following God through the person of Jesus Christ and those who reject God. They have excuses or they have reasons they they think they hate God. And it will be like that until the appearing of Jesus Christ. There will be this spiritual dichotomy in the world because ever since the next generation after Adam, there have always been two families in the world, the family of those who call upon the Lord and the family of those who reject the Lord. So we could read this as if the Lord is saying, you know, let things go on as they are until I come. But you see, the Lord is not ambivalent about this situation. He's not saying, let things go on as they are, whatever, I'm going to come and set things right. No, he's not willing that any should perish. Rather, these words in verse 11 are an encouragement to call believers to continue lives of righteousness and holiness and a warning to unbelievers to turn from their sin and embrace Christ for salvation, an invitation for the thirsty to come and the one who desires to take the life, the water of life without price. That's why he says in verse 10, the time is near. This is a warning. And in verse 12, the warning is clearer. Notice this, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense, that is my reward or my punishment. The word recompense sort of stands for both there. It's it's a word in the Greek uh, text that sometimes means reward, sometimes means punishment. It could mean both. It depends on what side of the judgment you're on. Bringing my reward or punishment with me to repay each one for what he has done. And then, as if to heighten the intensity of this warning, this is where we read the words, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You had better take this seriously. So, in this context, we could read verse 11 this way 
we could say, let the evildoer, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy if they dare. And let the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy as they should because I am coming. I am coming soon and I will punish the wicked and avenge and bless the righteous. We see the same dichotomy in verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. Remember that's in the New Jerusalem. We see that in the beginning of the chapter. That they may enter the, the city by the gates. The gates are discussed in chapter 21. And then he says, outside are the dogs. That was the, the, those who uh, attacked the Christians as Jewish unbelievers would call the Christians dogs. I think there's a reference to this here. Dogs were not a nice domesticated animal as they are today often. They were like we think of wolves or creatures that would run wild. This means those who, who they refuse to come and to be transformed by God. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Washing one's robes or wearing white garments in Revelation depicts the behavior of those who follow the Lamb. Those who know God through Christ, they will be welcomed into the new Jerusalem that we read of in the greater context of this passage. They will stream to the gates of the city with all the others who know the Lord, rejoicing together as they come to worship. The new Jerusalem, as we saw at the beginning of the chapter, is pictured as this new and better Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were thrust outside the garden so they would have no access to the tree of life. But those who know the Lord will one day have full access again to the tree of life. But outside the city are those whose lives have never been changed by the transformative power of the gospel. And they are lost for all eternity. Now, John cannot mean here that these sinful people will not, they'll be on the new earth. They're just not allowed through the gates of the new Jerusalem. That's not what he's saying here because in chapter 21, verse 8, God on his throne, God himself speaking from the throne, says that on the new earth, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars will have their portion in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God himself says that. So when John says that they are outside, this is an understatement. They are actually in the lake of fire. But again, the text reads this way as a warning. Because at this point, it is not too late for those who hear the words of this prophecy to turn to Jesus by faith and believe, to trust in the death of Christ for their sins and his resurrection and turn and love him and follow him as Savior. This is the significance of his coming. The coming of Jesus Christ is good news for the whole world because he comes to set everyone in the world free from sin and darkness and death and to give everyone eternal life. That's the mission. But we can only experience the benefits of the mission, the benefits of those blessings, if we embrace the Christ who came for us. 
Just because Jesus appears, just because he comes as a baby in a manger doesn't mean the whole world is saved. We have to embrace him by faith. That is why when the angels appeared to the shepherds, they said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And then in the chorus, the angels sing, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, I know you're aware of the difference between this version of the angels chorus and the one we all grew up hearing. Peace on earth, goodwill, or actually that word is pleasing, good pleasing toward men or toward people. And between you and me, I like the way that one reads better. It has a more flow to it. It sings better when you put it into songs. But why are there two different versions of the angelic chorus? It's actually because of a textual variant in the Greek manuscripts that underlie our New Testament. Some manuscripts read one way. Some manuscripts read the other way. But can you believe that the difference between these two readings in the Greek language is the difference between only one letter in the Greek text. I can explain to you this more in detail if you want, like the the 0.05% of you who care uh, afterwards. But the presence or the absence of a single sigma, which is like our letter S, determines whether the text reads the second way peace and good pleasing to people or the first way peace to people who please God a single letter I'm going to apologize in advance for what I'm going to show you here but I just I know some of you might be interested in this if we look at ancient Greek manuscripts you can see this for yourself in one of the oldest and respected Greek manuscripts we have produced somewhere in the 300s the word translated goodwill or pleasing has the sigma. I'm going to circle it for you. It looks like a letter C in our uh, English alphabet. So the text, this text reads, Please to, peace to those with whom he is pleased. And one of the reasons the modern translations go with that reading is because most of the oldest manuscripts have it this way. If we look at the Alexandrinus copied in the 400s, we see the same thing. We see the C there in this word. Uh, also, Codex Bizet in the 5th century, uh, there it is again, and you see the C circled. The Sinaiticus is one of the most respected and revered ancient manuscripts, and what you see here is the absence of the sigma. You don't see it here. This text reads, peace on earth, goodwill toward people. However, if you look really carefully, you'll notice that the manuscript did not originally read that way. Someone came along and rubbed out the sigma, probably to make it align with later manuscripts. So in other words, this has a very interesting history. This verse we all know by heart and we say at Christmas has a very interesting history. Now, I didn't, I didn't have to show you all that, I know. I, I knew some of you would be interested. But the point is that most likely the reading of Luke 2.13 and the most ancient one is the one that remains here in the modern text enforces the idea that just because Christ came doesn't mean everybody's okay. Unless we know Jesus Christ, that is the significance of his coming. The appearing of Jesus is the event that separates those with true faith from those who are only relying on their own works. 
You know, when Jesus was born, the Magi came from the east to worship him as a king. They showed up in the capital in Jerusalem where they would expect to find a newborn king in the capital. And upon Herod's summons, the Jewish scribes, remember, they come out and he says, you know, where, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And the scribes knew the word of God backwards and forwards, and they pointed them to Bethlehem because that was the prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Our chapter 5, verse 2 of Micah. But none of the scribes apparently cared enough to go see for themselves. And when Jesus appeared years later preaching about repentance and entrance into the kingdom he would bring, those without faith became very obvious because they rejected the Son of God and many of them plotted to kill him. Until then, some of these people who plotted to kill Jesus looked like the most devout, pious, religious people in the society. But it was the appearing of the Son that revealed the truth. And that is still true today. When Jesus appears, all will be revealed. Whatever, whatever is going on in your mind or your heart right now that nobody else can see will be known. Those who are truly trusting in and loving the Savior and those who are on the outside. And I hope this morning that you know the Son of God, that you really do know Him. I hope that there has been a time in your life where you have recognized your need for forgiveness from a holy God and have embraced Jesus, your only hope of salvation, His death for your sins and His resurrection. That's the gospel. And I hope that if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ this morning, that you will learn to yearn more and more this coming year for his coming. I trust that our conviction of the certainty of his coming and the nearness of his coming and the wonder of his coming and the significance of his coming will grow in us at Gateway Baptist Church in 2023 so that people will come and recognize many things perhaps, but one of the things they might recognize is that our church is waiting expectantly for the Lord to come, for these events to be put into motion. And when he returns, he will vindicate himself and his people. All wrongs will be righted. Whatever bothers you about injustice in the world will be gone. All injustices will be settled. All lies will be revealed and the truth will prevail. Our sadness will turn to joy. Our night will turn to a brightly shining day. Our pain and sorrow and fear will be a thing of the past. And we will truly dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Can we get excited about that? Can we yearn for his coming? Let's pray that the Lord will be pleased with our expectancy of his soon return. And so may the grace of the Lord Jesus himself be with us all. And all God's people said, Amen. let's pray together.